0: One thing that I've found to be true about quarantine, and I wonder if you've experienced some version of this as well, which is like the, the over presence of the past because the present is so kind of stripped away. So I've found myself um, kind of, I'm, I'm always sort of a creature of the past. Like I always feel a bit flooded and hounded and haunted by memory, but I found that it's almost like present experience quieting down has like left this room that the past has kind of come into to flood and and all the objects in that home are almost like a, a literal like a literal instantiation of that all around you
1: my name is jordan Kissner and this is thresholds a series of conversations with writers about experiences that completely turned them upside down disoriented them in their lives changed them and changed how and why they wanted to write. Hi, everybody. Jordan here, coming to you after a slightly longer pause than our usual weekly cycle. Uh, This marks the last episode of Season 1 of Thresholds, and initially our plans were to do this as a live event at Public Records in Brooklyn, New York, as part of a month-long residency by Arthur Moon, the musician and composer who's behind the music that you hear on this podcast. Our guest this week... Leslie Jameson and I, we were going to chat on stage over live music and hug and answer real live in-person questions, and the Thresholds team was going to get to meet some of you, the people who tune in to listen to us every week, and it was going to be really beautiful. And then, of course, a global pandemic hit and live events became impossible, and then Leslie herself contracted COVID-19 and our timelines and the nature of the kind of conversation we were going to have changed and then changed again. The episode we're airing today is pretty dramatically different than the one we were planning, but it feels honestly to me so much more moving and complicated and beautiful than what I imagined initially. Leslie doesn't really need an introduction. But for anyone new to her work, I will preface our conversation by saying that Leslie Jamison is an essayist, uh, the author of a collection called The Empathy Exams that came out in 2014 and really reinvigorated America's interest in the essay. Thank you, Leslie. Um, she's also the author of The Recovering, which is this cultural exploration of addiction, a beautiful book, and most recently, a new collection of essays called Make It Scream, Make It Burn. And so much of her writing um, treads ground that feels really useful right now and also just dear to me in general. She writes a lot about memory and longing and the stories we tell ourselves to kind of keep our lives manageable. But the piece of writing that shapes this conversation that you're about to hear is actually one of her most recent. It's an essay she wrote for the New York Review of Books while she was sick with COVID. Um, If you want to go look it up which you should. It's titled Since I Became Symptomatic. And in it, she describes being alone in her apartment with her young daughter, um, experiencing her body as something that's alone and yet absolutely in some kind of unseen relationship with other bodies. She's shedding a virus that could affect other bodies and some other shedding body affected hers. And she writes about remembering life before this weird time and imagining, because her daughter is so young, this future that she might otherwise not even be able to imagine, but that she sort of has to imagine for her daughter. And this essay just, to me, really feels like it captures this time of all of us siloed in our separate homes away from each other, but also kind of waiting together for the emergence of some new or different world. Um, And it reminded me of the ways in which this time is a kind of threshold. Um, My own book, which is itself about what happens in those kinds of liminal in-between moments, takes its name from the Celtic concept, Thin Places, which holds that the distance between this world and the next world is never more than three feet, but that there are moments and places where that distance collapses and you can sort of peek into a new world and that thin places are both glorious and mystical and also really frightening because when you see the the world that you understand falling away and see some new world in front of you, that's, that's really scary, um, even as it's also full of possibility. I was so excited to talk to Leslie this week. She was sort of exactly the person I wanted to talk to because her writing in this most recent essay, as her writing often does, helped me reframe the way I was experiencing life right now um, and reminded me that this this time right now is its own kind of threshold and thin place, which means that it's terrifying and disorienting but also um, possibly transformative. And new. And with that, um, here's this conversation with Leslie Jamison. Oh, and one thing to note about this recording you're about to hear is that when we recorded the audio, we were a little bit flying without a net, which is to say, working without a sound engineer, which means that these recordings are cobbled together from iphone voice memos and zoom audio recording and the sound is a little bit funky um so thank you for bearing with us on that
0: i feel like in this moment we're all living so much that even like a given day has so many we're living like both nothing and so much at once but we're the kind of ecosystem of any given day holds so many different layers of feelings. So physically, I am totally um, recovered and feel grateful for that. And also really didn't have um, a, a terribly serious case compared to what so many people go through. And I think one of the things that's such a um, challenge to like wrap your mind around about this illness is just how it looks so many different ways or plays out so many different ways in different bodies. So it's like simultaneously fatal and asymptomatic and kind of everywhere in between. Um, my own experience was definitely intensified by being in total isolation with my daughter who's two. Um, so, you know, and she's really great but of course I, part of my parental mind goes to this place of like, oh, like already anticipating where there are elements of like being quarantined with me when I was sick that have, will now show up in therapy years later. One thing that I noticed she started to do was, um, and maybe this is a developmental thing too, but she became very interested in acts of caregiving. So she has like a little wooden zebra, um, where she's now quite interested in like, changing its diaper and like tucking it into bed. And, um, she at one point had like a tube of Clorox wipes that she like also wanted to tuck into bed, which seemed very much like a Corona era act of caregiving. But I I thought maybe there was something that she absorbed about seeing me fairly sick that sort of aroused those impulses in her as well. Um, but we both got through it. She never showed any symptoms, which was great. Um, and so now we're, we're in the, the trudge of quarantine, which is sort of simultaneously what everybody's inside of, but everybody's inside a slightly different version of it. It's simultaneously been really nice to have the small community that I helped take care of up at Columbia to have that as like a, um, a world to try to show up for in whatever ways are possible. Um, also, you know, a a really kind of fascinating thing to see work and childcare play out together. It's like everything from Ioni being there for faculty meetings on zoom or like meetings with the deans on zoom. And, and there was actually at least one meeting where her presence, kind of shifted the conversation in a fruitful direction that it wouldn't have gone to otherwise around um, caregiving and how kind of parental relationships end up getting psychically bound up in our relationships with our teachers and our students and administrators and, you know, kind of independent of the particular things we're saying about that. I was really struck by the fact that um, working with my toddler wasn't just about being disrupted. It was about sort of finding something that couldn't have happened otherwise in the conversation through her presence. And, um, you know, I can't, I don't want to be a Pollyanna, it's not always like that, but sometimes, sometimes necessity or deprivation or disruption of various kinds, like jar something into presence that couldn't have, you couldn't have quite seen otherwise, or maybe you were looking past.
1: Yeah have you is she old enough that you're trying to explain to her what's happening is she asking questions um
0: no I think she might be like just shy of that kind of sentience she is definitely aware that she's outside less than she usually is and um you know has feelings about that that express themselves as like run around pick up sticks you know like I can hear her kind of yearning towards the world but um she's also small enough that like you know there are degrees of infinitude in this world and um in certain ways her book is kind of about that as well but um I think for her a three-bedroom apartment is infinitude enough you know like there's a lot for her to see and do and be curious about um like in an apple. You know what I mean like? So I think she maybe feels the constriction of the world a little bit less acutely than kids who are even just a few years older than her. Can I ask fully acknowledging that I found it close to impossible to answer the question how are you? How
1: what has your quarantine been like so far? Um You're right. That's a really hard question to answer. It's been it's been okay. It's been Degrees of absolutely lucky and fortunate and degrees of strange and and harrowing. Um, Spent a little, like a couple weeks feeling really terrified because my dad is doing very well, but is very vulnerable because he's just had bypass and like all this heart-lung bypass. Um, And it looked for a few, like 10 days, like my mom had COVID. And so there was like this panic and then it turned out that it was fine and it was exhaling. And since then, it's just been this experience of a really radically new relationship with time. Like Mm. there's nothing, I mean, there's everything going on in the world. And yet my days have never been kind of emptier like I went through the process as we many of us did of like going through and deleting everything off your calendar like March and April and May and June there was tons of stuff on the calendar that like just all got deleted off and trying to kind of feel the weight of a day now and the weight of um like my own being in time as divorced from my normal routines of work and productivity and seeing like all of my normal ways of like measuring whether or not my time has been used well has been suspended. And so that's kind of what it's been like is figuring out like, what is a day and what is a good day? And what is a day where I've been a useful person look like, given that a lot of the ways that I used to f- measure that for myself is different now. Like our, uh, you know, appointments or errands or seeing people or whatever, planning things, uh, it's not really available any anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's so, um, it's, it's
0: funny that you should talk about time. I mean, maybe we're all thinking about time, but that last idea of sort of reframing time not as something almost like a currency that one trades in for a certain set of things that have been done with it, right? Whether that's like work or the various ways that we sort of start to think of um, even our relationships, not as work in the sense of being effortful, but work in the sense of having sort of creating something of value. Um, and in that way, it reminds quarantine has been making me think a lot about, uh, what it was like when my daughter was a newborn, because that was another time in my life when my relationship with time felt sort of radically disrupted in that way. And, and I shifted from, was sort of forcibly shifted, not like enlightenment style shifted from, uh, yeah, this like vaguely type A relationship to using time to do things, to really seeing time, less as a currency and more as a kind of an element that was moved through. Like the point of a day was to get through the day, which sounds sort of grim, but didn't actually feel that grim. I mean, sometimes it felt endless or tedious or whatever, but it also felt quite beautiful and in a way sort of liberating to think, what is a good day? That question, which I've been thinking about some too in these days, Um, but like that a good day would just be to somehow move through the hours in a way that felt good rather than turning the hours into something. It's just like a really con- different conception of what like existence is for or about, um, the kind of idea of passage rather than product. I think that I really struggled um, I've really struggled to let go of a lot of things, including the f- the genre of the to-do list, because I still actually have, I have a little pile of quarantine to-do lists, which feels a little unevolved, like that I had this feeling that quarantine was supposed to be, maybe uh, that quarantine might liberate me from my psychological dependence on the to-do list. Um, but instead I've found myself like, even if they are, even if I try to be realistic about what can be on it, it kind of still feels good to me to have um, some structure to the days. I think for me, it comes back to like my best, to my my favorite to-do lists were always when I I worked at a bakery for two years and I would show up and have my list kind of um, magneted to the big walk-in freezer. And I think because I was trying to write a novel that wasn't going very well, a, a project that felt sort of simultaneously infinite and futile. It was really nice to have the counterpoint of like make a hundred squirrels. Like I will do, it is a definite discreet thing and I will do it. Um, but I think that, you know, and I've had a little bit of the same relationship, like actually instead of doing what a sensible person would do and like delete all the things off my calendar, I sort of left them. And so that I would get these ghost iCal reminders all the time that felt almost like telegraphs from an alternate universe where like all of those things were still like where I was like still going to Marfa or like still you know like I was like oh that other life but I think I wasn't quite ready to let go of it and so I wanted those reminders to come back but when you were talking about like the shifting relationship to time as maybe raising these questions also about what it is that we want to go back to. One of the things that I think has been fascinating to kind of witness in myself and in everybody is, is shifting from that initial paradigm of like things are disrupted now. When will they go back? When will they go back to like another paradigm that like things are disrupted now and we don't know what they're going back to. They're certainly not going back to just what was before, um, both in that sense of loss and like all the things that might not make it to the other side of this pandemic, like people who lose their lives, like businesses that can't come back, but also that sense of like, maybe we don't want to just completely resurrect all the old ways of being. Maybe there's some other possibility for what could happen on the other side of this. And I I think that shift, even if we're still inside of it, rather than able to like Get enough critical distance from it to like name exactly how it'll play out. I think is interesting and and really does make me think about um, kind of the psychological function of like the conversion structure or the conversion narrative, which of course like you've thought about and written about so much. But kind of the attraction, in a way, of 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 being changed in some or ha- going through some kind of like watershed from which you emerge somehow different or closer, maybe not better, but like closer to something closer to some truth or some other realm and, or God, or, and I think that, yeah, I've been, I've been sort of tempted by that way of thinking about the pandemic and quarantine and also suspicious of it, like tempted by the idea that like on a personal level and maybe even some larger social or global level, like there could be a kind of some kind of conversion or transformation structure or lens through which we could look at what's happening Um, and certainly feeling like somehow what if I could emerge from this not just like sort of tired and lonely but but somehow like I don't know like have some even slightly tweaked sense of how I want to move through the world or my own life Um, but also feeling kind of wanting to regard those with some degree of awareness about those as like comforting structures of thinking and feeling, right? Like that, that, that every pain can be redeemed by what happens on the other side of it. And, you know, I think constantly about, um, that line from Randall Jarrell's 90 North, when he says pain comes from the darkness and we call it wisdom. It is pain and sort of also wanting to grant the pandemic it's due in that respect that like, we don't need to call all the pain that comes from the darkness wisdom. Like sometimes it's just that.
1: Yeah. I think something about thinking about this time as as possibly fitting into a conversion structure is really interesting, particularly because it's going on for so long. And we, as we've been warned, it might go on for a really, really long time, like, you know, months and years. And what's striking about that is that it kind of breaks the conversion model wherein conversion happens kind of like almost before you know what's happening. And what's so striking to me about this time is that it's it's really going to stretch. It's stretching and it's going to stretch. And we have enough time to kind of look around and say, okay, what's Happening in here. What might happen on the other side? We're we're like given the the possibility to reflect while it's happening on what we might, how we might be changed, and to maybe worry about how we might not be changed if change is is something we're wanting. Um, and that, like, as is no surprise to you, is like an int- to me, like an intellectually and emotionally interesting. I'm I'm always interested in periods where you're forced to be in suspension between two places. Um, hence the name of the podcast, hence the concept of my whole book, um, which I know I wanted, which is why I want to talk to you because I know that you have also written so much about moments where, um, you know, like you wrote this beautiful book on recovery as not this thing that happens Right away, but as this uh, this long process that you sit inside, and you've written so beautifully about motherhood as something that is not like a a a, a simple transformation, but as something that happens through time. And you've written really beautiful about, beautifully about love in that way, and. So yours was just kind of a vo- I just wanted to talk to you about how you're feeling right now, about what you're thinking about and what you're feeling and how you're – you're one of the few people I know who's producing writing right now. And I wonder if that's because this feels like writing is always the way that you move through moments like this or if it's something you're doing kind of in, in spite of – if you're working against your um, your own impulses to be still or something like that. It's
0: interesting that you brought up recovery because I was thinking about this um, concept in recovery of like trying to make room for several kinds of spiritual experience. And one is the kind of spiritual experience that like the founder of AA had, Bill Wilson, when he had this sort of vision of, um, which maybe had something to do with some of the medications that he was being given in his particular detox. But like he had this vision of being up on a mountain and it was like a mountain from his childhood in Vermont. And it was this, it was this like sudden moment of feeling like contact with a spiritual realm or with God. Um, but there's like an appendix in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that, um, I've always loved for its grace and its humanity that basically is, is trying to say, like, not all spiritual experiences are like that. And like kind of like if you don't have a mountaintop moment, you're not fucked. You know, like you you might still be learning God or you might still be getting closer to God. It just might. I think they call it a spiritual experience of the educational variety. But it, it's basically a way of evoking this idea that something could be happening in sort of subtler ways, stretched across time, and that that is a um, another another structure of change, and that's oh, I think part of why I am drawn to writing about um, that kind of like long term slow transformation is because I crave the alternative so desperately. Like I crave the kind of sudden moment of clarity and realization. Maybe we all do. I I crave the night after which everything was different. And, you know, there's something so saving about that. And so I think I write into what's more difficult, both what's more difficult emotionally to think about these kind of like long-term processes whose contours you can't even really see that clearly when you're inside of them and also, kind of craft-wise or narrative-wise, it also feels more difficult to me because it's not it doesn't have the kind of tight dramatic structure of a, of an epiphany or a watershed, right? It's like it's sort of longer and more tedious and um, more ragged and messy, and and those structural difficulties that come up in trying to find language or, or storytelling around that those also intrigue me because they feel almost like gauntlets thrown down like try to write about this you know in certain ways people think of addiction as like a sort of class classic narrative structure and it kind of is but if you're really trying to be honest about what both addiction and recovery are like I think in most lives it's much it's much messier and more ragged and actually much more narratively difficult to do justice to that back and forth and the tedium of it and the repetitions of it so um, I think in that vein of like writing into difficulty or writing in, like, the some version of, like, the teacher teaches what she, like, most needs to learn. I think I'm I'm drawn to writing about those things that I feel like I don't quite have down yet, like how to stay in long-term, slower processes of change. And in quarantine, I mean, it's funny. I I haven't been writing that much, um, in part because I um, uh, have, by and large, been doing – Almost all the caregiving for my daughter, but um i I do think that it helps me it helps me relate to experience to write about it, and that doesn't always translate into it feeling possible to write about it, but it you know maybe it's a version of what we we're talking about, like converting time into something um in a way, it helps me be more present in my own life if I can think about. It also is something I might try to shape into a story or a piece of writing. It, it allows me to sort of occupy a more hyper-attuned kind of way of paying attention. And I think it's kind of fascinating how that can work in both directions. Like sometimes people think of writing about life as a sort of displacement from inside your life, like a version of being on vacation. You're never on the vacation because you're always taking photographs of the vacation, Um and i i get that and i think that's sometimes true for me but i also think i also think there's something that pushes back against that in which like forms of noticing and meaning making are not actually the opposite of presence but can be sort of constituent elements of like kind of wanting it's like it's like a way of tricking myself into being like curious about what might otherwise just feel sort of um depleted or compromised or boring <laughs>
1: Earlier, you were talking about how like you haven't given up the to-do list and maybe you should. I actually haven't given up the to-do list either. I've been doing more list making, but not in like a Productive way, I, which is fine, but like I've been listing just things that are happening and like things that were. I'm making the most boring lists, to do lists, and then just lists of things that I can. Like, what's everything I can see out my window? What's everything that I have in the closet? What's the? I'm just the. There's something about writing down what's happening in list form or embracing the tedium the boredom of process and of time passing um, and of whatever the spiritual work is that you're doing in the day where the time is passing, even if it's just getting yourself from the morning to the evening, um, that is a way of relating to writing that I actually haven't had in kind of a long time where I'm writing, I think, for evidence that the day happened and that there were actually Mm -hmm. things in the day that I would never have bothered to they weren't important enough to, to note necessarily unless I was reporting or unless I was turning on my observing mind for working. Um, mm-hmm. And I wouldn't necessarily have applied that to my home, home space or my home, you know, like unless something really strikes you and you want to write it down. But at home, this is, this is where we are now. And it occurs to me, I've never written down, like, what are people wearing In 2020, I found, you know, like, what are people, like, I never bother to write that stuff down unless, because I don't need, it's not functional for anything. And so I've started writing in this really non-functional record-keeping way that's about capturing, that's out of tedium and is about capturing unimportant, concretized things that is actually feeling really special to me somehow. I don't, it's not for anything, but it doesn't feel wasteful either I don't know the way that um
0: the sort of things that are right in front of us can become most invisible to us because we forget some part of us subconsciously forgets they won't always be there and I think fashion is like a really great example of that like fashion not in the sense of like runway fashion but fashion in the sense of like what's all around us all the time and um one of the I taught this class on archives in the fall and one of the um, kind of beautiful gems that we got to encounter as a class was at the New York Public Library. They have um a lost they have a bunch of lost and found ledgers from various worlds fairs, especially the one in the Bronx. Um and it's a really uh, kind of useful list of just like what people were wearing and like what accessories they had from this lost and found, like, you know, how many kind of tortoiseshell glasses are on it. And, you know, but you just realize like, we don't have that many forms of account. We don't have that many nets for that particular kind of information. Um, so it's always so cool to sort of do these things that make it visible. And one of the last pieces that I was working on, before the pandemic was uh, an essay about this exhibition that was up at MoMA um, that was a, an ex- exhibition of home movies. And I was really moved by it. Like some of them are like um, eight millimeter film projects by artists. Like they have like a Peggy Awish and Andy Warhol and Peggy Sherman. But the ones that I was actually most interested by, you know, instead of the artist's name on the little placard. It's just like Hubley family or Thompson family. It's just ordinary families' home movies in like, you know, one of the most famous museums in the world. And part of what I felt like they made visible was just like all the things we might never think to capture. Like all these daily things that you're writing in these lists are the same kinds of invisibles made visible that I was seeing in these home movies and moved by in them. And um, and it, there was a funny structure to the piece, to the writing of the piece and then the piece coming out because it was like I wrote it from inside of one life that was plenty daily. You know, I had a home that I took care of and a child I took care of. but But then the piece came out then like kind of right in the middle of quarantine. And it was almost like a past version of myself that had been talking about certain things, not entirely in the abstract, but from a certain position of luxury where it was like, I was in the daily, but I also, you know, had real time to work and like time to write and time to think. It was like that version of myself was telling the version of myself that was sort of like 24 seven in the domestic and in the daily in quarantine, like, no, remember, like, you think these things have value too. And you like wrote this whole essay about it sort of before life became, as you were saying earlier, um, a kind of ongoing process of meeting this surreal, massive global event that's kind of unlike anything we've lived before, but we like meet its largeness and its surrealness and its unlikeness from inside lives that are extremely familiar, extremely repetitive, extremely like what we've just a kind of hyper-realized form of like what we've already known. So like there was this way in which we kind of have to have prompts or instigations to like see the daily or the domestic again. Maurice Blanchot, the philosopher, writes really beautifully about that, that like the daily is, is, is what we are constantly looking past because we're never seeing it for the first time.
1: Yeah. Have you felt like you're re-encountering your house for the first time? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I moved,
0: um, I moved just about a year before the pandemic and have a lot of psychological attachment to the place where I live now. Like, I really love it as a home and it was like an important life change that moving was attached to. Um, And so there was a part of me that was kind of scared that I was going to stop liking it so much if I just associated it with quarantine. But I actually do feel like I've been, um, yeah, kind of like learning it in new ways. And my friend Anna, who's a poet, and I have been doing this thing with each other that your lists remind me of a little bit where we leave each other voice memos um, that we call object lessons, where we'll we'll choose an object from our home and like tell the story, tell like a five minute version of like the story of that object and then send it to the other person. So Anna has done some great ones. She did like her pile of unreturned library books as like all these books that she's sort of some part of her intended to read and she never did. And what, what were those intending parts of her? Um, she did one about the orange earrings that she, um, was wearing when she gave birth to her son. Um, I did, um, a kind of, um, uh, an object that was made for me by this artist up in Ithaca that is like a series of dried flowers that she collected one spring, but like the whole process of sort of coming to know her, um, is, is exactly what I think of when I see that object. So in a way it's like, we've been trying to create, um, a sort of ritual or a structure to, to, to see the, to see these objects as like sources of plenitude, right? Because it's like, you can sort of tell yourself to do that in the abstract, but sometimes you need a little bit of a mechanism underneath it. Um, yeah. What? how have you, I mean, I'm, I'm both curious, like, whether, I'm curious about a lot of things. I'm curious what your relationship to writing has been in quarantine. I'm curious what your own answer to that question also about the relationship to home is.
1: Well, I mostly haven't been in my home, nor have I been with most of my things so I've been in this house, this really interesting house that's full of generations of family items, photos, heirlooms, old you know, old old, old furniture, um, old 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 like linens. in my family, we don't have any house that with that someone that's been in the family for gener- generations at all. So it's been interesting to kind of like discover, to be really looking at like all of the different paintings on the walls. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I never bought. You know, like I never really bothered to look at that dish before. What? Oh, that's kind of interesting. Did, do you think that went with that? Like, there's. So it's been an opportunity to notice, um, but notice a space that isn't of my creating
0: yeah the part of me that like is a real archive geek kind of loves that idea of almost getting stuck for a couple of months inside somebody else's archive you know like that there would be not that you're spending your days just like rifling through all the stuff in the house but that idea that sort of everything I mean there's sort of there's one um pretty fascinating dimension to becoming reacquainted with the familiar by virtue of being quarantined in your own home. But there's another kind of plenitude and sort of having this these close quarters sort of unrelentingly with like this accreted history. And it sounds like a very particular home with a real accretion of history in it, which is not actually what most homes are. So yeah, or not for that many generations, maybe in a way, it's like a concrete embodiment of one thing that I've found to be true about quarantine. And I wonder if you've experienced some version of this as well, which is like the, the over-presence of the past because the present is so kind of stripped away. So I've found myself um, kind of, I'm I'm always sort of a creature of the past. Like I always feel a bit flooded and hounded and haunted by memory, but I found that it's almost like present experience quieting down has like left this room that the past has kind of come into to flood and and all the objects in that home are almost like a the literal like a literal instantiation of that all around you but it's like somebody else's memories instead of your own I guess but um, I wonder and it's funny because I was I actually had independently even before we were gonna have this conversation I had been. I had thought of that concept of thin places, um, in relation to this particular past present confusion, because I mean, um, one of the ways you're exploring that concept in your book that I found so beautiful was this idea of like, you know, like in the sense of the, the Celtic idea of like times or places when like the boundary between the spiritual world and the physical world grows thin. And I just, I, I find that to be like, kind of an exquisite concept and a really mysterious concept and a really compelling concept. But I did have this feeling that I was living in a sort of thin place where somehow the whatever membranes make the present self by virtue of kind of keeping the past in the past and trying to at least pretend to be present in the present, I felt that those membranes had grown quite thin for me in quarantine, especially when it was had been days since I'd seen another adult human being. And, you know, it was like, I, I, so I, I wonder whether you felt any version of that particular kind of like thinness or porousness.
1: You know, I can't say that I necessarily did. Um, but maybe that's because I'm less of a, when there's empty space for me, it's the unknown future that rushes in rather than the past, Mm -hmm. but I, which, so I've been spending a lot of time with the unknown future, but, uh, but I'm wondering what that, what does that mean? What does that look like for you when you're saying like the membrane between us your like the now and some past self feels mm-hmm. feels thinner than usual? I think part of it is is that there are
0: kind of very distinct features of life right now that remind me of like particular eras in my past so um there was a summer when I was eighteen. Uh, when I had surgery on my jaw, and for a couple months after that, I my jaw was um, wired shut, so I couldn't eat or speak, and I wasn't—I was like recovering in a pretty serious way physically, and felt really self-conscious about how I looked, and so I was really like at home. And it's the only other time that I felt so kind of physically cut off from the world, and and really like like there was just this wall between me and the world and in a weird way kind of a wall between me and myself and especially when I had one of my COVID symptoms was like um totally losing my sense of smell and taste and in that way I felt I I just felt this like particular physical connection to like not being able to eat and this way in which it was like how many different ways can the body be cut off from the world like the body isn't leaving its house the body can't like receive substances, like, um, and so I think in that way, I was aware that these circumstances had created a kind of little wormhole back to this particular time, you know, 18 years ago. Um, But I think there will also be, you know, I felt a kind of, maybe the wormhole analogy is the is the kind of most concise way to put it. I felt like a wormhole opened up to that summer when I was 18. I felt like a wormhole opened up to the more recent past of my daughter being a newborn. Like I felt like a wormhole opened up to early sobriety actually. And and this like attempt to reconfigure deprivation as a kind of opening or a kind of pathway to presence. Um, And so it's it sort of, I, I would just feel sometimes in ways that felt very, concretely sensical and sometimes in ways that surprised me a little bit more I would feel suddenly kind of thrust up against like madeline style some kind of um moment or era from from another chapter I I think that um <laughs> oh, hold on, hold on for one second <laughs> I'm so sorry. I think I have
1: to go. Um, Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music by Laura Faye Ashwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. This is our last episode of Season 1, but we'll be back this summer with Season 2. Until then, be safe. We love you.